Viva Las Vegas. Viva. Rob, what are you doing? We need to start the podcast. Andy, I'm booking my retirement holiday. I'm going to go to Ibiza, New York and Las Vegas. Oh, but Rob, you're too young to retire. And anyway, you need to plan for your retirement. Andy, I know nothing about that stuff. I don't even know how much super I've got. You need my accountants, Quantify Accountants and Bondi Junction. Have you heard of them? The ones that spell Quantify with a PH. That's them, Quantify, as in Q U A N T I P H Y. Look, they're terrific. A median sized four partner firm who specialise in tax advice and compliance and retirement investment advice just for you. They also have other divisions like a mortgage broking division and a superannuation division. They're just above the interchange of Bondi Junction and they're not your stereotype boring accountants. They may not be hip but definitely modern. Oh, what are you doing now, Rob? I think I'll go to Gundagai. I think that's a good idea. Quantify Accountants, proud sponsors of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. Hello and welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. My name's Andy Bromberger. And I'm Rob Caldor. Andy, hello and welcome to Series 3 of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. Series 3. Who could believe that? So, Rob, if we just look back at the other two series. Series 1, we looked at what is music, what is a melody, what is harmony, what is rhythm. Series 2 looked at the instruments of the orchestra, looked at the string section and the wind section and the brass section and what's a conductor. And today we are starting Series 3. Andy, I can't wait to find out what it's about. But before we get there, what happens if we've got people that have never heard any of it? Can we just start now? Absolutely. We'll start now or go back. What's so good about this podcast, I think, Rob, is that we've really tried to make each episode an individual episode. So if you want to know something about melody, go and listen to the melody. But if you want to hear everything, go and do that too. Okay, so Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, at the website, coffeecakeandculture.com.au. Let your friends and family know, rate and review it. You know all that podcast stuff. But Andy, before you even tell me about this Series 3, what is the cake part? Ah, so... Today we have some beautiful cakes that have just come out of the oven and they are spicy, moist honey cakes. They're not your typical honey cake, which is all just honey. These are honey cakes that have cinnamon and clove and a bit of grog and orange juice and coffee and a whole lot of stuff in them. So the honey is one of many of the little bits in this cake. I found this cake and it is just now one of my absolute favourite cakes. So I'm looking forward to, if I behave... If you're a good boy. ...having some of this lovely spicy honey cake. I have to say the best thing about this cake, it freezes fantastically. It will be up on my website. Make a whole lot of them, stick them in the freezer and just pull them out when you want. Before we get into the episode, tell us about what Series 3, what we're gonna, where we're going to voyage. Okay. Series 3 looks at six pieces of music which really changed the course of musical history. And we are looking at some pieces that people probably know, 
but we're also looking at some pieces that people probably don't know quite so well. And what I will be doing is I will be giving you the reason why these pieces are so important in the whole course of musical history and how they changed the course sometimes of musical history. One of the most famous podcasts ever made is something called Song Exploder, Mm. where they look at the origins and how something was written and how it was performed and things like that. So this is definitely ticking a few boxes for me. So where are we starting? Now, Rob, we are delving into an area of music where we have never delved before, really. We are delving into the 11th, the 12th, the 1300s today. Six, seven hundred years ago. A long time ago. We're even starting before that, so I can explain what happens. But the piece that we're actually talking about is a piece by a French composer called Machot, and it's his Mass for the Virgin Mary. So it's called Mass de Notre Dame. And it was a very, very, very important piece of music. Before we talk about this piece of music, we need to do a whole lot of history. We need to look at Gregorian chant. So Gregorian chant, just to remind you, were the the chants that were sung by the monks in early Christendom. They're the single line of music and it's the core, the base of all Christian religious music. When I think Gregorian chants, I think candles, big, big sort of amphitheatre kind of cathedrals and lots of echo. Okay, so that's not how it started. Because at the beginning of Christianity, there were no big, huge cathedrals. So initially, these Gregorian chants were sung in small little monasteries. But it was at the end of the first millennium into the second millennium that these huge cathedrals like Notre Dame were actually built. Let's have a listen to a little bit of Gregorian chant. I would say that's quite meditative. Yeah, that's a very good word for it because it's one single line of music. So it's pretty much stepwise. They don't have big leaps in it and it is very meditative type music. I think you mentioned in our earlier episodes one of the reasons that it's like that is because there was no musical notation. That's exactly right. You know, if you have to remember this music because there's no musical notation, it has to be as simple and as easy as possible. And it wasn't until the end of the first millennium that we had musical notation. We talked about that with Guido in series one, everyone who wants, who is interested in going back and looking at that. Once we have musical notation, we now have the ability to write music that is slightly more complex. And one of the really important composers who started to write this more complex music was a French guy by the name of Leonin. He was working in what we call the Notre Dame School in Paris. We don't know when he was born, but he died in 1201, around that time. And what he did was he decided to take that basic chant 
and to expand it, to make it more lush. This was a period where the church wanted the religious music to sound different from secular music. And one of the ways to make music sound different, and religious music sound different, was to make it more complex. If it was more complex and more beautiful, it was closer to God. And so what Leonin did was he wrote something called organum, which I don't really need to explain to you what the whole concept is, except for what he did was he took the chant the original chant that we just heard before, a chant like that. And then he wrote another melody on top of that chant. So instead of now having one line of music, we have two lines of music. But what he did was he made the top line very, very melismatic. Melismatic means lots and lots and lots and lots of notes on the one syllable. Oh, look, I will definitely try and sneak melismatic into a chat at some stage, but I think I get the concept. It's, okay. It yes. adds a, a level of melody and complexity. Exactly. But what he did as a result of making this very melismatic music, he made the mass, the religious mass, very, 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 very long. So if you can imagine that the monks in early Christendom had to say the mass three or four times a day, and originally, if they just sing, it would be 15 or 20 minutes long. But apparently with Leonins, they were so melismatic and so long that sometimes they lasted up to two hours, which means you don't really have much time in between your life to get from to sow your fields and make your butter and all the rest of it because you were going back and you were singing the mass again. So there were very, very, very long, beautiful pieces of music. Let's have a little bit of a listen to a little bit of Leonins. on top of it Mm. and it's beautiful is what I would say it's godly in a way and you see the church said to these composers we are happy with you to write new music but you have to have the old as well as the new so by keeping the Gregorian chant as the bottom using it sort of like the bass and sort of elongating it and then having his very melismatic bit on top he's doing what the church said he's keeping the old as well as writing the new it's not quite gospel it's not quite gospel but but you know the difference between gospel and this type of music is that gospel was for the congregants to sing, to be spiritually uplifted themselves by engaging in the music. This type of music was for the monks to sing. And so it was for them to be uplifted rather than the congregation. So what's really interesting about this period, and we call it the Notre Dame School of Music because they were working mainly around or in Notre Dame, was straight after Leonin, we have another composer and his name was called Peritan. And his dates are somewhere around 1160 to 1230. So he's sort of the next generation after Leonin. And what he did was he decided to take the Leonin organum, is what we call it, and to take it to that next level. He wrote music that had three voices. The first voice being the Gregorian chant. 
Then he would take a little bit of the Leonin music and put that down and then would write another melody on top of the Leonin following the the rhythmic structures of the Leonin. So we now have three lines of music rather than two lines. Now, Rob, it might seem quite basic or obvious, you know, you stick more lines of music on top of each other. But this is a period of time at this beginning of the second millennium where composers are really inventing a new language and it's the language of music. So it's like we can almost say that for hundreds and hundreds of years, we had the alphabet and we had little words that have two letters in them, basically. That's the Gregorian chant. Then we have with Leonin, we have starting to have words that stick more letters together. And now with Peritant, we've got bigger words. You know, if we think about it that way, as this is sort of the genesis of a new language, a musical language happening with the Gregorian chant, Leonin and Peritant. It's, it's great. I mean, I can, I can see it's like you're scaffolding. You're beginning, you, you start, you're starting with a a basic and it seems to be more the base kind of line and then adding more complexity as the ages go on. And so what we see with Peritant is we see the music having much more texture, much more sophistication than that original Gregorian chant. And getting back to what you were saying before about the Gregorian chant being sung in cathedrals, one of the important aspects of this music was that they were writing in for this new cathedral Notre Dame. And if you have that single line of music in somewhere like Notre Dame, it's going to sound good. But if you have many voices singing in a cathedral like Notre Dame, the sound is going to be so much more beautiful and fill all those spaces. So it's really interesting that at the same time as they were building these huge cathedrals, it's also the same time as music is moving from the simplicity of a Gregorian chant to something that is much more complex. Are we still just using the voice as the instrument? Yes. yes. At this time, almost all music is a single voice. There were very, very basic organs, but most places don't have organs. This is vocal music. Let's have a little bit of a listen to some peritant. Andy, what language are they singing? The scriptures were written in Latin. So even though they're French, they are singing in Latin. Okay, but, but coming back to the actual melodies, I can hear harmonies going on in the melodies as well as a bass chanting. Exactly. So you hear the Gregorian chant down the bottom, very elongated, and then you hear those two lines of melody over the top following 
each other. The rhythmic aspect is pretty much the same on both parts. This whole movement of both Leonin and Peritam, it's called Ars Antica. So A-R-S Antica. So the old art. And that's really, really important. That music was from around 750 to 1300. And that was the Notre Dame school and really important in this concept of polyphony. And polyphony means many lines of music playing together. We've talked about polyphony before. Now we need to look at the 14th century because in the 14th century in Europe, it's a bit of a period of time where you probably don't want to live. Mm, pretty, pretty dismal period. Pretty dismal period. There are a whole lot of disasters that happen in this period. We have the bubonic plague, which starts in 1347 and kills an estimated third of the whole population. Pretty huge. Yeah, a, a bit of uh, transgenerational trauma going on, I'd imagine. <laughs> so we've got a plague. What other okay, natural what, disasters, what other disasters do we have there? Well, complete, completely the opposite of what we have now. We have a mini ice age. They call it the Little Ice Age. And its effects were known throughout this European area in the North Atlantic region of the world. And what it meant was that temperatures plummeted. And it meant that there was huge crop failures. So not only do we have the bubonic plague killing half the people, we have these cold conditions making farming very, very, very difficult. Disease and climate change, nothing anyone can relate to. No, we can't relate to that at all. But as well as that, we have incredibly bloody wars. You can imagine what fighting was like in this medieval time. We have the Hundred Years' War between England and France, which goes from 1337 to 1453. Yes, they couldn't really count. The numbers of men who were killed in that fighting and maimed. and I mean, so look, basically, if the plague didn't get you, the famine would have got you. And if you were a guy, you would have been killed in war. So life was really cheery. Yeah, no, I, I can't imagine sort of upbeat music happening at that stage. <laughs> but what did that do? Did that sort of lay development? Well, no. What bizarrely happened as a result of this was we have this incredible influx of the arts. We have incredible growth in art, in music, in science, in literature, all happening while all of these disasters are happening all around. And one of the big changes is in music. And music goes from the Ars Antiqua that we were just talking about before to a new form of music that we call Ars Amnuva, as in the new art, the new music. This was music that really started to pull music from sounding ancient to sounding a lot more modern. And they started to write music that looks a little bit more like our music than before. Was it still attached to the church? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But the guy we're going to talk about does both. But yes, mainly the music still at this time is church related. And as I said, the piece that we're going to be looking at today is a mass. So obviously very attached to the church. But they started to develop musical notation that led to what we would now call time signatures and note values. So if we look at the music of Peritin and Leonin, it still looks very old. The music of the 14th century starts to look a little bit more like our music. Still very much for interpretation, but 
a little bit more like we, we, we can work out more what the, the the note values are and things like that. Shall we have a listen to Yes, some? so we're going to listen to a piece by a guy called Philippe de Vitry and he was writing in this 14th century. Andy, that nearly had a bit of rhythm, even though Mm. obviously there was no rhythm instruments, but there was a bit of a rhythm attached to it, I suppose. Yeah, it is definitely sounding a little bit more modern, a little bit more something that we could understand. Now, if I was going to stick that next to Rachmaninoff, you're going to say, no, it's not modern at all. But compared to what we've heard before, it definitely does have sort of more of a an understanding of where music is headed. But interestingly, two interestinglys, the first one is that this type of music is something that we call motet, and it comes from the French word mot, meaning word. So we know that the word is very important and the word is has a lot of melismatic qualities to it, as you could just hear, hear there. The other really important aspect of this is that just like today, There were those people who liked the new sounds of the Ars Nouveau and there were those who didn't like the sound of the Ars Nouveau and wanted to keep the music the way it had been before with the Ars Antica. I mean, that's definitely a human trait. We just don't, a fear of change. And I think it's really funny because I have to say that one of the things in my classes, people always say, you know, oh, I went to a concert and I heard this piece of music and it had been written in the last 10 years and I just don't like it. And, you know, I don't know why they just don't give me Mozart and Beethoven because I like it. And why would I subject myself to these modern sounds? And what is so beautiful is that if you read music history, continuously from the 14th century, you have people saying, yeah, we can see the beautiful elements of this music, but, you know, it sounds good for a once or twice, but really we want to go back to the original. And this is what people have been saying throughout time. You know, whenever something new happens, we like the old better. Maybe it's a comfort thing, a familiarity thing. Whenever these people say that to me, I always say, you know, they've been saying this since the 14th century. Mm. So, you know, just putting it into perspective. So this music is a lot more sophisticated than the Ars Antica and a lot of people found it too confronting and too novel. So now I've given you the backstory. Let's talk about the guy that we're actually going to be talking about because the guy that we're talking about is a guy by the name of Marchot. And his dates are somewhere around 1300, and he died in 1377. That's that's actually quite an innings for that period. Huge innings. And, you know, this is one of the really amazing things about Marshall is that he lived through all of these traumas. Like, how did he not get killed by the plague? He also was working for John I. Now, John I was the Count of Luxembourg and the King of Bohemia. And he and 
Marshall accompanied him on expeditions and military expeditions and trips all around Europe. You know, how was he not shot and killed? Um, when I say shot, I mean bow and arrow, not gun. He seems to be one of these guys who evades death continuously throughout his whole entire life. It's interesting that a musician was on the road with the military. That was common? He was actually part of the church. He was a canon originally, so he took his orders. But he was also very much in demand by the aristocracy to be part of their courts too. So he must have been a pretty cool guy. And the other really interesting thing about him was that the majority of the music that he wrote was secular. And in fact, the only piece that we know of his that was religious is the mass that we're about to talk about. And not only was he a musician, but he was a poet. And they say that he was the last person who was both a brilliant poet as well as a brilliant musician. So he really had his his feet in two camps. And I know you're going to say Bob Dylan. I mean, I, he, did, he, <laughs> he did win a Nobel Prize, I think, for his poetry writing. But I suppose you, you may question his musical ability, <laughs> at least his singing ability. So, But it's really interesting that this is this guy, the last guy who was considered both a brilliant poet as well, well as a brilliant composer. A vast majority of his poems were about courtly love. So he was basically a troubadour. He would talk about the service of ladies and the pleasures and pains and the traditions of the troubadours. And the troubadours were these wandering minstrels who went around singing about about love, basically. Are we in the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages? We're in the medieval time. There must be instruments by now. So what they would do is they would often accompany themselves with a stringed instrument or something like that. Lutes, I think, were bigger at the time. Yes, that type of instrument. Let's have a little bit of a listen to one of these secular pieces of music. We're talking a lot about equality and things like that. Don't hear too many female voices in oh, that. Of course you don't. Mm. <laughs> women were definitely not singing this type of music. First of all, women weren't allowed to sing in the church, obviously. But no, women aren't singing this type of music. This is a totally male domain. That melody, there's lots going on now. Exactly. So what we're now having is you're having three lines of music in this case where each of the lines of music are pretty much of equal importance. When you listen to that, could you really tell which part was the top part and the middle part and the lower part? No, you can't. They're all intertwined. They're all sort of singing all over each other. E3 equal lines of music. 
One of the other really important things that Masha wrote was a poem called The True Word. And he wrote this probably around 1361 to around 1365. And it recounts a love affair that he had with a 19-year-old girl. Now, he's around 60 at this time. So he may have been slightly delusional about this, but he wrote this incredibly long poem that goes for 9,094 lines of verse. So we're talking about something quite insanely long. There was eight syllables per line and they were in rhyming couplets. It's quite an effort. Oh, it's insanely insane. Can you imagine? All about this relationship that he has with this 19-year-old girl. But what he interspersed in this incredible poem were some songs. He set some of the poems to music. What's really interesting about this is that unlike the pieces of music that we've heard before, which have many lines of singing, this is a poem. There's one line of singing. And in this version, we have instruments below it. Now, we don't really know how it was sung or whether instruments were played because they weren't written. So it's speculation. So, but we do have that, just that single line of melody. How do we know about it? Unlike most composers from this period, including Leonin and Peritam, they put their names at the bottom of the music. So they were composers who actually said who they were. But the amazing thing about Machaut was that at the end of his life, he collected all of his music and his writings. He made collections of them and put them all together for posterity. And a time when nobody was thinking about the future. He was one of the few people thinking about the future and putting all of this aside saying, these are for the next generation. He's one of the very few people around that we know something about because he wrote it down and he kept it. Interesting bit of uh, copyright law needs to be uh, backfilled, I think, you know, from the, the remnants of the Marchaud family <laughs> trying to get their, their rights. Probably not. Well, there was no family because, you know, he was part of the church so he didn't get married. So <laughs> Neither him nor his brother. But I know where you're coming from. So that's a really interesting point that we actually have all of this stuff from him. Let's now talk about this piece of music. So he wrote this incredible piece of music in sometime before 1365, which is the Mass of Our Lady. Now, before we need to talk about that, I just need to talk about the mass, the concept of the mass and what was happening with the mass at this time. So if we talk about the mass, there are two sort of sections of the mass. We have the ordinary of the mass and we have the proper of the mass. Now, the ordinary of the mass are the the bits that are sung every single day. So they are the Gloria, the, the Kyrie, the Credo, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei. Then you have the proper of the Mass, and they are the bits that are plonked into the Mass for special occasions. So if there's a Saint's Day or there's Easter or there's Christmas or whatever, they are the bits that are added to the Mass. Am, am I right to say Mass at this stage was happening every day? Yep. Absolutely, many times a day if you were a monk. 
There had been up until this point, no one had written a full mass. So what would happen is that you're in charge of music. You would go to your music library and you would pull out a credo written by this person and a Kyrie written by this person and a Gloria written by this person. And that's what you would sing. So composers had written specific bits, but nobody had written a complete mass. So basically the the head of curation or the DJ of the mass at the cathedral (laughs) would be responsible for the the daily vibe. Yes, you're absolutely right. He would choose what was going to be sung that day. There was one mass called the Tournay Mass. And that was a complete cycle where somebody, probably Tournay, or unless Tournay is a place, had taken each of those bits of the ordinary and stuck them together and said, that's a full mass. Let's have a little bit of a listen of that bit of the mass. So what you just heard there is a section of a mass, which is called the Tournay Mass. But what it is, is a whole bunch of, let's call them movements when we talk about the Kyrie and the Sanctus and all that sort of stuff. Each of them has been written by a different composer, but they were stuck together and called the Tournay Mass. So it's like a collection. Playlist. A playlist. A playlist, yes. Mm. Where, where you have the best of. You know, at the end of every year, you had that best of record where, you know, the best of 1985 and the mm. next, yeah. So that's basically what this is, where somebody has taken the best Kyrie and the best Sanctus and the best Agnus Dei and the best Gloria and stuck them together and said, this is the Tournay Mass. Is this happening all over Europe? Yep. So all over Christendom. Then you have Marshall. And now, as I said, Marshall is this guy who's been traveling around Europe, fighting in wars, evading the plague, invading arrows, writing all this Tupidor music, as well as being a member of the church. And hitting on 19 year olds. Hitting on 19 year olds, yes. Let's just, let's just evade all of that, those sorts of comments and mm. concepts, yes. And then he's in the cathedral at Rem, and he was born in Rem or somewhere near then. And he decides to write a mass for, for Our Lady, the Messe de Notre Dame. And he decides to write all the sections of the ordinary of the mass. Now, he's the first guy in history to write a full mass. They must have said he was crazy to try that. <laughs> Probably. When you listen to any of the masses from that time on, the first one was written by this guy called Masha. So this is why, you know, the reason that the whole concept of this series is to look at pieces of music that change the concept of music. We can't go past this piece of music because every mass written by one composer, which most masses are today, was started by this guy sometime before 1365. So he was a real pioneer. He took the bull by its horn and actually thought, all right, no more picking the best ofs. I'm going to do the whole thing myself. 
Absolutely. That's exactly what he did. He also did a whole lot of other things in this. So he also decided that he wasn't going to write music in three lines. He was going to write music in four lines. So he could divided his choir up into four parts. And the way he used those parts, very different from the way we use four parts today. What he also did, this is a mass for Our Lady. So what he did was that in the masses of those days, you would have some Gregorian chants interspersed within the mass itself. And so each of the Gregorian chants he chose were Gregorian chants that were part of the bits for Notre Dame, as not the building, but for Our Lady. So let's have a little bit of a listen to the Kyrie, the Gregorian chant for the Kyrie. It's very melodic. What does Kyrie mean? So Kyrie eleison means Lord have mercy and it's the beginning of the Mass. Okay, so it's basically coming in with a bit of praise and, you know. Yes, so the, each of these sections of the Mass, each of them are talking about different aspects of praise. So what we have in this Mass is this juxtaposition between the unison singing of the Gregorian chant and the polyphony of Machaut's music. Polyphony, again, meaning many lines of music all being played at the one time. So after we have that chant that we just had, then you would have his writing. Now, if you look at the mass itself, some of the movements have a small amount of text, and they are things like the Kyrie, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, and the Eta Missa Est, which is the little bit at the end. And so what he did with the music that had a little bit of text is he made it very melismatic, made it just go on forever. So, you know, you'd have heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of notes on very small syllables. Let's have a little bit of a listen to this. I mean, Andy, I can see the complexity building. Mm, mm. And it's really interesting how he decided that those bits that had fewer words were going to be so elaborate. 
But then those that had many more words, like the glory and the creator, their text is quite lengthy. And instead of making that even like hugely melismatic, I mean, it would have taken forever, he makes those bit have much shorter phrases. There's a similar rhythm to all the parts. You can actually hear the words. So he's really sat down and thought about how he's going to write some parts and how he's going to write some others. So let's hear now one of these bits that have a lot of words and so are much less melismatic. And I can hear there's a, a lot more text being sung. So you can really hear all those words. I mean, if you understood the Mass, you could understand all those words. Now, he did one other thing to this, which was really interesting. In the Credo, there are these words that said, and he was made of flesh. And so what we have in the Credo is it's bouncing along. It's quite jolly. And then all of a sudden, the, the movement stops. And these words are said very slowly, one syllable at the time. And then the music bounces back and goes back again. And this was to draw attention to these words because they were seen as so important to the Christian faith. But what is interesting is that that idea was copied by many, many composers after him. It almost became sort of de rigueur. This is what you did when you got to those words in the credo. You slowed the whole thing down so that everybody could hear that bit and then you moved on again. It probably got the tick of approval from the sort of religious people as well. It's emphasising, you know, this is why we're here. Let's have a listen. The other thing that we hear in this piece is that the lines of music are really, although there are four voices, the voices aren't soprano, alto, tenor and bass like you would hear in in Bach, say. You have these four voices that are all sort of intermingled over the top of each other. If you were to listen to it and I was to say to you, follow one voice, it would almost be impossible to do that because the voices all go higher and lower on top of each other. If I was to show you a score of it, you'd see how there's no sort of individuality in it. It's two parts and two parts and the two parts are all over the shop.
So it doesn't have that division that we see in modern music. And in fact, at this time, people thought that their voices had quite a small range. So today you can sing a couple of octaves. But at this time, about an octave was what people thought they could sing. And that's just because they hadn't trained their voices to go in in either direction. And so what you have is you have all these voices on top of each other. Do you think it was also that, you know, our perception of music at that time was very different? You don't need that bass line. Music was written totally differently. And remembering the concept of soprano, alto, tenor and bass happens in the 1600s. We're in the 1300s here. You know, that's 300 years later, 300 years of development. So really quite further on in the musical world. The final thing I want to talk about in this piece is how we listen to this music today. Although we have musical, the notation, the notation is so simple compared to our notation today that if you want to play or sing some of their music, you need to do so much research and guesswork to play the music as accurately as it potentially might be. You know, we've talked about that when we've talked about the Baroque period, you know, how do we really know how Bach's music was played? Well, bring that back 300 odd years How do we really know how this music was played? So what I want to play for you now are three little different bits bits played by eminent ensembles and see how totally different each of these bits sound, even though they're the same bit, because the notation has been interpreted so differently by each of these ensembles.
And it's so interesting to hear those three pieces and how over time we interpret things differently, the same pieces. And you can hear that they all sound like the same piece, but there are so many differences in them. And it, it, it's like messages from the past at each level being whispered into somebody's ear and passed on. And it really is like that because we don't know what is right. We don't know how it was sung. This is just speculation and everyone can have speculation, which is accurate. And so, Rob, that is the first episode in this new series looking at these pieces that really change the concept of musical, the trajectory of of music. I know when I said to you we're starting with something that was medieval, you went, hmm. And I think you can really see how important this piece is in the history of music. As we hear the next few pieces you'll see that this is the bedrock. This is where it starts. And the next one is something totally different. Mm, I'm, I'm looking forward to no hints. Oh, I can give you a hint. Oh, no. Wait and see. <laughs> All right. So, Andy, before we go, is that burning smell? <gasps> well, it may be. I hope not because honey burns very quickly. It, it does. I'm looking forward to the honey spice. Remember, if you're enjoying this podcast, let your friends and family know. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Why? Because that really helps and lets more people know. Forward it to your friends. You can listen on Apple or Spotify. Looking forward to our next podcast at Coffee Cake and Culture, the music podcast. And if you'd like to have any more information, have a look at my website, coffeecakeandculture.com.au. See ya. Bye. This podcast has been produced by etails.com.au.